Hi, I'm Paul Havershoud, host of The Cost of Living. It's a show about money and how it shapes our lives. In big ways, like why inflation could get worse if we all make more money. Here's the hard truth in all of this. Workers are going to have to eat that real wage loss. And small ways, like what's the fastest way to order fast food? That first Big Mac that comes out of the kitchen is going to the drive-thru. Check out The Cost of Living. We're on CBC Listen or wherever you get podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Hello, I'm Neil Kirksall. And I'm Stephanie Skanderis. This is As It Happens, the podcast edition. Tonight, the bittersweet spot. Imprisoned Iranian human rights advocate Nargis Mohammadi is this year's winner of the Nobel Peace Prize. A young woman who once shared the same cell block tells us about the joy of seeing her friend recognized and the terrible price she's paid for her activism. Possession may remain nine-tenths of the law. B.C. rolls back parts of a pilot project that saw the possession of small amounts of illicit drugs decriminalized. Roadblocks, we catch up with the banned books tour as it arrives in Florida today, but instead of handing out some of the thousands of books he'd trucked in, the driver tells us protesters were stalling his efforts. Unbridled tragedy. The population of the wild horses of Sable Island, Nova Scotia, takes a hit. And one biologist argues they shouldn't be there at all for their own good and the islands. All the world may be a stage, but only one theater has the boards played on by the bard himself, or so new findings lead them to believe. The very excited theater director tells us what he hopes will follow the finding of the famous footsteps. And zero to sexy in no time flat. A low-flying military helicopter sets off a mating frenzy on an Australian crocodile farm, leaving scientists to speculate what it was about the chopper that got the cold-blooded creatures so hot and bothered. As it happens, the Friday edition, radio that can appreciate a chance mating. Women will not give up. That was the message from Nargis Mohammadi, smuggled out of Evan Prison earlier this year. For more than three decades, the human rights activist has fought for women's rights in Iran, despite great personal cost. Today, her work and those sacrifices were acknowledged when Ms. Mohammadi was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize. Altogether, the regime has arrested her 13 times, convicted her five times and sentence her to a total of 31 years in prison and 154 lashes. Ms. Mohammadi is still in prison as I speak. That's Norwegian Nobel Committee Chair Barrett Ress Anderson speaking today about Peace Prize laureate Nargis Mohammadi. Anna Diamond first met Ms. Mohammadi inside Evan Prison when she was accused of espionage at age 19. We reached Ms. Diamond in Oxford, England. Anna, how did you hear the news? I received so many messages <laughs> and I woke up this morning feeling honestly overwhelmed with joy after I heard the news because I felt like this was a big, big recognition for everyone who struggles for democracy, freedom, 
women's rights, but I think really at the core for human dignity. And I think that's what Nagas represents. On one hand, it is this celebratory moment, but the realities are, are so harsh uh, and heartbreaking. So how do you weigh all of that on a day like today? Absolutely. Of course, it, it is a bittersweet moment because uh, Nagas has been doing this for 32 years. Most of the time, it's a very thankless job. It's not glamorous. It's high risk. And and as we've seen also today, you know, she's not there to receive the award that she so deserves. So it is a bittersweet moment. You're faced with the stark reality of what being a human rights activist in a country like Iran entails. But at the end of the day, it's also a huge encouragement for, for people who look up to her, for the new generation, the Gen Zs, who risk their lives during the woman life freedom protests uh, since last year. So so this was an overdue award, if you ask me. But it's also, I think, a recognition of, of a new dawn that has emerged in Iran. Tell me about the moment you met her. I met Nagas in 2016. I had spent quite a few months in solitary confinement and I hadn't seen a single fellow human apart from my interrogators, of course, but even them, I I couldn't see them. I had a blindfold on. Um, So eventually when I was transferred to the woman's public ward, I kind of collapsed and I was crying and and I was very disoriented. And and I guess was just really was this warm figure who came forward and she said, it's okay. (laughs) There's some sense of normalcy here. And then she said, you look like someone who enjoys good food. What would you like I make you? <laughs> um, and, I, and I will always remember her, that kind of motherly love. Again, it's heartbreaking because she's been apart from her own twins for so long. She hasn't seen them for over a decade. And I think the last time they had a FaceTime meeting was like 18 months ago. Um, so, so all these activities that she does it comes as a great personal cost. But I think there was an interview she gave not too long ago where she said, a world where there is no liberty is, is a world she doesn't want to be a part of. And I, and I think, you know, she embodies those words in, in her everyday resilience and disobedience. That scene you describe is so extraordinary. I mean, to be greeted with that kind of mother figure and someone who wants to shower such kindness on you at any time yeah. would be lovely, <laughs> let alone after after something like that. And I understand she had a habit of yeah. organizing gatherings inside prison where she would sing and play a pot like a drum. Oh, did yeah, you see that? Absolutely. Oh, I did. I did. Um, it's 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 strange saying this because, of course, prison is such a honestly out of body experience almost. I I look back sometimes and I'm like, did I really go through that? So it's um. When I was there and she welcomed me like that, it was almost like she wasn't phased by any of it. She had accepted her fate, but she refused to accept it as defeat. Um, and, and you know, after a few days, she sat me down and she asked me to tell her what I had gone through in solitary confinement um, because she wanted me to share my experience so that she could lay out these patterns and tactics that the that the revolutionary guards used during interrogations. And then she actually wrote a book about that called White Torture, which was published just last year. And what's really incredible is that she had smuggled out basically the whole manuscript. And it was called White Torture because 
it was largely psychological so that when a prisoner is ultimately freed, there are no physical remnants um, and they can't claim compensation. They can't complain about their treatment. Um, but that was, of course, the last decade or so. I think yeah. the last 12 months, this changed a lot. And we have heard a lot of news about young women being physically assaulted, beaten, and, and now things have taken a really dark turn. When was the last time you, you spoke with her? Um, it was during COVID when she had been released on furlough. Mm-hmm. She she had called to check up on me. You know, she was the one who had come out of prison for a few days for furlough. And and the first thing that she wanted to do was to check up on her old friends and, and fellow inmates. And and I think it showed, you know, her love and kindness and, and the integrity that she had. She understands that protest movements are crucial for her work, but she also values personal relationships, which is really quite rare. The Nobel Committee, as you know, also recognized the, quote, hundreds of thousands of Iranians who have demonstrated since the death of Masa Amini against the, quote, theocratic regime's policies of discrimination and oppression targeting women, end quote. This is clearly meant to to send a message both to Iranians, Iranian women, but also to the Iranian government. Do you think that message will get through? Will it change anything in terms of the government? Well, I think one thing that will definitely change, uh, or I hope that it will, is the behavior and acts and self-perception of protesters. I hope they will see this as encouragement, um, and I hope they will believe that this means that the world is standing with them and shows them solidarity and supports them. Now, what the Iranian government will do, um, they might actually go on a on a harsher crackdown. Um, but in terms of Nagas Mohammadi herself, I think she now has a global platform. Um, and it would be uh, very, very miscalculated if Iranian government tried to punish her in any way for, for this recognition she has received. Because now she's got the entire world standing behind her. She's not alone. Anna, it's been a pleasure to speak with you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Anna Diamond is a human rights activist. We reached her in Oxford, England. A load of contraband is being driven deep into the reddest of U.S. red states, and the plan is to get people hooked. The product? Thousands of books. Written on the side of the truck is Banned Books Tour 2023. Book bannings have gone up over 30% across the U.S. in the last school year, and we've told you about many of those stories on As It Happens. Carlos Benjamin is the campaign and events manager for this project. He's also the one driving the truck. We reached him today in Daytona Beach, Florida. Carlos, you're in Daytona Beach. You were supposed to be setting up, laying out your hall, those books. Where are you now, though? Yeah, so um, I haven't been given the clearance to go and set up at the community center because of some opposition that we're receiving from groups here. Um, Right now, I'm just standing by at my hotel waiting for the green light that is clear for us to arrive. What kind of opposition is there? 
So I believe that it's protests and um, like some protesting going on. And there are some groups that um, I'm hearing that are there to basically kind of stop us from being able to be on those grounds. So that's what I'm receiving now. And I'm just waiting to hear back um, from the people that we have at the center who you know, know that we're coming to let us know that it's clear for us to come and, you know, if it's safe for us to come. So once you get that clearance, Carlos, what are some of the books you're going to be giving out? Yeah. So some of the books that I saw, um, um, the 1619 Project by Nicole Hannah-Jones. I saw some books that was um, titled Who Was Martin Luther King um, by Bonnie Bader. There's also The Hate You Give by Angie Thomas. Um, I have some Legacy by Nora Roberts books. And um, I also saw some books by Maya Angelou. Um, one of them was I Know Why the Cage Bird Sings. Why did you want to be a part of this? When I learned about this project and the fact that there is this censorship going on and banning of books, I felt like, you know, this is something that can change the world um, if it's successful. And to be able to be a part of a project that can make people aware of um, book banning and, and, and censorship, I felt like that alone is a project that will allow me um, to change the world. What have the students you've met so far along the way, Carlos? What have they been saying? One of our locations in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, we set up at an elementary school and I got a chance to hear from a lot of like the um, elementary school students, you know, speak about how they feel about censorship. And that was just so inspiring to me to hear that you know, these young kids are actually educated enough to know what censorship means and to be able to express how they actually feel about it. Yeah, a lot of the kids communicated that they felt that it was unfair, you know, that, um, you know, there are people who are even able to ban books. And uh, like a lot of kids felt like they were just pretty surprised to know that it was even possible that, you know, people could pour so much knowledge and wisdom into books and then suddenly like they're just no longer available so to hear like these young kids be able to communicate that so clearly i was just so blown away that they were just you know up to par at that level of of knowledge and wisdom to know what what this actually means what do you say to to some of the parents who are at these protests, perhaps, or who are trying to get these books off the shelves, who say, you know, it's not about banning books for everyone, just keeping books with mature themes away from children who they feel aren't old enough yet to understand them? What do you say to that argument? Like you as a parent, I mean, you can decide what your kid wants to read, but I don't think that it's right to just... Yeah, be okay with just banning books. I think that you should just be able to make a decision whether you want your child or yourself to learn whatever the book is communicating because there is people who put a lot of work and dedication and effort into these books and sharing what they've learned. And I just feel that banning them and censorship is just not the way to go. So leave it on the shelf and just decide individually if... if Exactly. Leaving the people with the right to decide whether it's your, you know... Whether it's the kids or adults, like you should let, yeah, individuals should be able to decide. And if you're a parent, then you should be able to decide. What's your next stop? So the next stop from here is going to be Coral Gables, Florida. It's down in Miami. And have you seen a lot of protests at each of the stops you've been to? Well, the stops that we've been to so far, which was Brooklyn, New York, um, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and Washington, D.C., 
there were no protests and it and we had a lot of um you know people that showed up to actually support um and and just become aware of what's going on mm-hmm. so there hasn't been any um opposition in those markets so what's it like to see that change um to see that change is actually a little surprising for me to notice like wow here we are in you know some markets where people are you know, totally um, happy to learn that, oh, wow, this is something going on and, and, and this is what I can do to stop it. And then enter a market where people are just totally against you being there at all. It's it's a little um, it's a little shocking for me. And it just makes my mind become a little bit more um, aware of just the importance of this cause overall. It sounds like you're, you're yeah. saying very calm and, and uh, oh, yeah. not you don't sound worried about these protesters <laughs> yeah um I'm, I'm actually not worried at all um because i know that we're doing something good and i know there are millions of people that are supporting this cause and for me to just be one of them i'm just thrilled to be a part of the um the journey how much longer are you going to be on the road how many more stops do you say so we have probably about i think 11 more stops and I have about three more weeks of these stops. Well, Carlos, I appreciate your time. Thank you. Yes, you're so welcome. It's my pleasure. Drive safe. Thank you, my friend. I'll talk with you guys soon. Bye-bye. We reached Carlos Benjamin in Daytona Beach, Florida. Many of English literature's most famous lines come from Shakespeare, but the playwright sometimes had another role in the theater as an actor. And though his line, all the world's a stage, lives on, any actual stages his feet touched were widely thought to be long gone, until maybe now. A theater in Norfolk, England, now claims to be home to the only surviving stage Shakespeare himself performed on, after a renovation revealed 600-year-old boards beneath the theater's surface. Tim Fitzhyman is the creative director of St. George's Guildhall in Kings Lynn, Norfolk. We reached him there. Tim, I wonder, have you been spending a lot of time time traveling in your mind 600 years back uh, a lot lately? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's been quite a uh, quite a week, I think we'd have to say. Yes, it's certainly been unusual finding the uh, the, the the or confirming and finding the original floor at the venue in the theatre has been uh, has been really very special. Yes. What do you see in your mind's eye? What do you feel when you transport yourself back? Well, it's really interesting that you asked that because the floor that we found, so we've got the the oldest working theatre in the country, in England. Uh, The first recorded performance of the theatre is 1445. So what you would have seen when you walked in through the the door of the hallway is you would have walked into a corridor. Uh, We now know that. And then you would have turned right into what would have been like a great hall that you would see on kind of programmes like, I don't know, um, Game of Thrones or, (laughs) uh, or, or The Last Kingdom. You would have been a big hall that would have had feasting going on in it and at the end of the hall there would have been a slightly raised area where the big posh people would have sat Mm. very much in the in the in the kind of game of thrones way and then down the end of the hall in the doorway that we've just come through is where the players would have got their kit out and started doing their shows and that for us is the part that we're really interested in because we know that in our theater 
1592-1593, William Shakespeare's company played a visit there. So what we've now uncovered by uncovering this original floor is the very boards on which the bard trod. And you, that's really exciting. You believe, you believe this. But let's let's go back a little bit more. A couple of weeks ago, you're preparing yeah. for renovations. Um, yeah. You've seen these boards before, but an archaeologist got a closer look at them. So how are they time stamping these? So the archaeologists have used a combination of things to get the age of the boards. First of all, we've used scientific analysis, which is called tree ring data, dendrochronology. And what they do is they take a tiny sample of the of the wood and the distance between the rings of the tree uh, is part of a sequence of, of, of tree ring data. And it takes us right the way back through history. And now tree ring data is, is so advanced that it can even tell you if the trees were grown in, a, in an urban environment or in a park land environment and that dated the boards scientifically to between 1417 and 1425 uh, mm-hmm. secondly we've got the documentary evidence and that ties in with that date between 1417 and 1425 so all those things tie together mm-hmm. the documents the science and the construction uh, to, to give us a really clear very firm date of 17 uh, 1417 to 1425 uh, that's long before Shakespeare's time, though. So what proof is there that he himself was performing there in in the 1590s? So first of all, and perhaps most importantly, we've got the borough of Kingsland and West Norfolk account books. And they show us that in uh, 1592, 1593, uh, Shakespeare's company was was paid to come play the theatre in Kings Lynn. So that's the first piece of evidence. The second piece of evidence is that we know that Shakespeare was actually an actor at that point because he gets a bad review. Uh, Your listeners might have heard of the phrase, the upstart crow. Well, that actually comes from a bad review in 1592 of Shakespeare as an actor. It refers to Shakespeare as a player Mm. rather than a writer, which is really important because it proves that he's not just writing for the company uh, that he's performing with in 1592. He's a player in that company as well as the writer. So you're you're convinced there's no doubt in your mind based on those, no, even though very, there's others with, who are skeptical. Well, I mean, they, they, they may not have heard the full evidence. Mm-hmm. I think that's possibly the, the, the truth of it. I know there's, there's one expert that's quoted uh, in, the, in the New York Times who is also quoted on the BBC website. And I think the New York Times appear to have asked him a slightly different set of questions, perhaps, because on the BBC website, he is thoroughly behind the discovery and the New York Times try and portray him as not being behind the discovery. So so there, there's, there appears to be a difference in the way that it's being reported on the two sides of the Atlantic, perhaps. There are places to visit, places of significance in Shakespeare's life. Mm. Where do you think that these these floorboards fit into that? Why are they meaningful to you? Well, we don't have anywhere else a stage that Shakespeare performed on. No other venue in the world can claim to even have any evidence that Shakespeare performed on the stage. We have got very good evidence that Shakespeare performed on this stage. In in other places, for example, the Globe Theatre, which is majestic and gorgeous and wonderful, it's a reconstructed theatre. It's not the original. What we've got in Kingsden in Norfolk is the very original theatre. It's not been changed, really. Now we've found the floors underneath this floors. It's not really changed a lot since Shakespeare walked through the door. It's still the same windows, still the same brickwork. And now we know it's still the same floor and still still the same boards. So what's going to happen to these floorboards now? 
we had this renovation plan. We were moving forward on it. It was all going really well. It was all on time. It was all going brilliantly. <laughs> and then suddenly, bam, we find this floor, this incredible discovery. And this floor is huge. I should tell the listeners, you know, it's the size of a tennis court. It's a really big area of, of timber floor. And it's the only uh, remaining 15th century timber frame floor of this size and scale anywhere in Britain. When you put Shakespeare on top of that, suddenly it becomes internationally important. And so at the at this, right at this moment, I mean, we only found it a week and a half ago, or only confirmed it a week and a half ago, I should say, uh, we're, we're suddenly, the project team and I are kind of taking a step back and going, whoa, hang on a minute. Our plans were all going forward brilliantly, and now we've found this. We've, we've got to take a step right back here and just go, how do we, A, preserve this floor for the next 600 years to make it exciting for people, but B, share this floor with everybody so everyone can get inspired by it. So are you hoping that that you're going to get some more funding to help do all of that? Yeah, I really hope so. And I hope that that funding will enable us to make something truly special that can entertain, inspire and educate people going forward for the next 600 years. Let's hope that this venue can find and inspire the next William Shakespeare. And that would be really exciting. Tim, thank you for your time. It's a real pleasure, Neil. Thanks for talking to me. Tim Fitzhyman is the creative director of St. George's Guildhall. We reached him in Kings Lynn, Norfolk. Nobody knows exactly why it made them do it, but do it they did the way only Randy Crocodiles can. It all started when a military helicopter flew over a crocodile farm in Queensland, Australia. Seemed like no big deal for the farmer. His farm is near a training facility after all. But this recent visit from a low-flying Chinook turned out to be more exciting than anyone could have predicted. Because when the helicopter came in close, presumably to gawk at the thousands of crocs, it turned a typically no-big-whoop event into an atypical whole-lot-of-whoopee event. As the farmer explained in an interview with the Australian Broadcasting Corporation, when the copter approached, quote, all of the big males got up and roared and bellowed up at the sky, and then after the helicopters left, they mated like mad, unquote. The reptilian rumpus is all the more mysterious because mating season doesn't begin for at least another month. And now scientists have jumped into the fray, metaphorically only, with their theories about what might have sparked such a rapid shift in mood. One croc specialist surmises the animals might have confused the sound of the chopper with the call of a competing male. Another suggests the helicopter's low altitude may have felt like a change in barometric pressure, which can signal the start of mating season. Either way, here's hoping it was good for them and that the farm was calm again after they got their crocs off.
British Columbia is less than a year into a pilot project, one that decriminalizes possession of small amounts of illicit drugs in a bid to reduce stigma and prevent overdoses. But yesterday, the province said it planned to roll part of that policy back. The proposed changes would add places like beaches, parks and bus stops to a list of spaces where drug use is not permitted. And while Premier David Eby says meeting addiction with punishment is not the answer, he said yesterday compassion does not mean allowing drug use in places like playgrounds and parks. The move comes after several municipalities push the province for more support, but some say this is not the answer. Nadine Nakagawa sits on New Westminster's City Council. We reached her there. Councillor Nakagawa, what does this proposed rollback signal to you? Well, I'm troubled by the rollback because New Westminster is a city about, of about 80,000 people, but we're quite geographically small. And so that means that in a lot of ways this will be prohibiting, um, it, it's basically rolling back decriminalization in a lot of ways, meaning that we're going back to where we were and remembering that decriminalization was brought in because of the drug toxicity and the number of people dying, it does seem to me that we are reverting to a system that we know is causing people to die. The drug crisis is certainly uh, a consideration and a concern for people right across the country in British Columbia and in other provinces as well. But what does it look like? What does that crisis look like specifically in New Westminster? Well, New Westminster is a really compassionate city, and so we have a lot of community service organizations. Um, We're also the geographic center of Metro Vancouver. We have a lot of transit stations. So, you know, we are a busy community, and we have seen an increase in in street homelessness over the past uh, number of years. The homeless count numbers just came out yesterday, showing that we had a 65% increase in homelessness in New Westminster. You know, similar around the region. We're not outstanding in that way. Um, but, you know, there's so many members of our community who have been touched by the poison drug uh, supply crisis. Mm-hmm. Uh, so many people have lost friends and family members. And so we do see the impacts of, you know, the housing crisis, the mental health crisis on our streets every single day. Um, and we are feeling the impacts of, of so many people um, dying or being debilitated by the opioid crisis. Your city does have a, a safe consumption site, though, but you don't feel that's enough. Why? Well, we are very happy to have a safe consumption site in our community, but it isn't open, you know, at all hours. It's open, I think, from 3 to 11 each day. And so while people definitely use that centre, we know that we need more hours. That doesn't help people in the morning or early afternoon. We also know from the statistics that it is actually inhalation that is causing the most deaths. A lot more people are inhaling drugs. And so it doesn't offer that component to it. So it's really crucial that not only we expand the service offerings there, but we expand the hours that it's open, increase the outreach outreach services that it has. Um, because, again, it works when people are able to use that safe consumption site, but the hours and, and the services offers aren't working for all members of our community right now. As we mentioned, this is just a proposal at this point. They're not pulling the plug on the entire pilot project. So given the concerns that other municipalities voiced, Is this not a necessary compromise at this point? Well, I think we have to understand what is causing, you know, the impacts that people are concerned about. So I don't think it is true that the government decriminalized drugs and people thought, oh, gee, I'm going to go use fentanyl in a park, for example. I don't think that that's a reasonable response that anyone had. The fact is, is that we have seen growing homelessness, which means that 
people aren't able to use drugs in spaces that are safe for them if they have a home. We also know there's more often more often that people die when they use alone. So that's not safe either. Um, we also know that there's escalating mental health crisis coming out of the pandemic. People have lost connection to healthcare. They've lost their communities. Um, you know, we've had really negative impacts from that. So this hasn't been caused. The impacts, um, like increased street homelessness, has not been caused by decriminalization. So I think a lot of people have created sort of like a boogeyman out of decriminalization. It's being blamed for the impacts that we're seeing. You know, mm-hmm. nobody likes to see people in crisis in our community on the streets. That's not comfortable for anyone. But at the end of the day, we have to be realistic about what is actually causing it and what the solutions will be then. I think this compromise is the wrong compromise. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that the compromise we need is massive and fast investment and rollout of housing and healthcare services. Many listeners would likely agree with you that more housing uh, and more services would help in the long run. But for those who are saying they're seeing an increase in drug use, at some of these public spots, uh, bus stops, for example. So what would you say to them or, or the people who don't feel safe, you know, just waiting for their bus at night? They don't wish anybody ill, but they also want to feel safe in their daily activities. Yeah, everybody deserves to feel safe and comfortable in our community. And I think it's absolutely true that we have the perfect storm of factors contributing to more people being unwell in our communities. That's absolutely true. We're seeing the impacts of it on the day-to-day, and if we want a compassionate and human rights-based response, then again, we have to respond with the right answers. If we were to just recriminalize drugs, I don't think that these problems just automatically go away. But that's the not what they're doing here, right? Mm-hmm. But even if we were, if we were to go to the real extreme even, with these problems wouldn't go away. So then even a lesser solution won't do that. What will actually solve it is, again, giving people safe places to use drugs. We've been waiting for, for more more support, more housing in our community in New Westminster for several years. We're asking for it, demanding it. So they're not quick answers, but they're the right answers. Mm-hmm. And so it's easy to just stigmatize people who are vulnerable. It's easy to call for things um, based on fear or anger, but that doesn't make that the right answer. In the interim, though, as those bigger picture measures get sorted out, what would it take to, to help your community and people in it, all of them right now? In the interim, again, I think it's responding with compassion and it is encouraging folks providing outreach services. Um, Yeah, it will take time to staff those up. It'll take time to roll those out. Um, But the harm that we do by stigmatizing people in the short term, we'll see long-term implications of that as well. Um, So I worry that this response will cause more deaths um, in the community, which again, will impact a lot of folks. What is your sense of how likely it is that this legislation will go through? I do think it's likely because, again, I do think that there is a lot of people ramping up fear. Um, so I, I do have a sense that, that this probably will go ahead. And uh, I am worried about the repercussions in the community. I think it was a brave choice that the government, that the BC government took advocating for decriminalization. I think it was it was unfortunate timing that we saw many you know, factors coming together to, to uh, make it seem as if this has had the big impact on our community. But... Um, yeah, I, I think it'll be a real shame if they go ahead with it. Councillor, thank you. Yeah, thank you. Nadine Nakagawa is a city councillor in New Westminster, B.C. We reached her there.
could there be? Hey, I'm Johanna Wagstaff. And hi there, I'm Rohit Joseph. And we're asking for 10 minutes of your day to go through the 10 things that the UN recommends we can all do when it comes to climate change. Please don't leave. No. And also the things (laughs) aren't new. We are just wired to not do them. We promise you to help you figure out your brains and you and your people can make better choices to combat climate change. 10 Minutes to Save the Planet is available now on CBC Listen and everywhere you get your podcasts. A more romantic image than an island where wild horses roam free. The horses of Sable Island in Nova Scotia have played that role in the minds of Canadians for centuries. They are the descendants of animals left behind by the British after the expulsion of Acadians in the 1700s. For generations, they've been protected from human interference, but left to fend for themselves. And this week came news that last year, roughly a quarter of their population died over the course of the winter. That's about double the number of a typical year. Ian Jones is a professor of marine biology at Memorial University with an expertise in island ecosystems. He's also a longtime critic of the status quo on Sable Island. We reached him in St. John's, Newfoundland. Were you surprised, Ian, by the death of these horses on the island? Horrified, but not surprised. Mm-hmm. Um, concern over many decades um, about the this population of stranded farm animals on a remote island in Atlanta, Canada, has really been about uh, mass starvation events which have occurred before, um, and animals um, succumb annually to the harsh conditions there. You see the island very differently than a lot of people who imagine. You know, they, they say the word magical comes up a lot, but what you're describing is certainly not. You know, what occurs in our romantic imaginations, and Mm -hmm. I can appreciate this because my wife and I are are horse lovers ourselves. We have a Newfoundland pony, which is a distinctive kind of of pony that's endemic to Newfoundland. So we appreciate people's love for horses, but there's uh, when you start to find out more about what's going out on there, on this remote island, in this situation, um, the romantic part sort of tends to fade. We'll talk in a moment about their effect on the ecosystem there, but but just in in terms of the horses themselves, what kinds of lives are they living on the island? Well, these are English draft horses. Um, you know, some per- people like to refer to them as wild, but really they're they're abandoned farm animals, and they're on a, a remote island that is a very windswept, treeless island, very harsh environment. Uh, it's a sandy island, so it's it's almost in a semi-desertified state. Um, and you've got these uh, introduced horses eking out a desperate living there and, and not doing very well. But they've managed to survive all this time? They have, with some assistance, including drops of food to them that has mm-hmm. occurred. The fact that the population is able to keep rebounding after starvation event after starvation event, I I personally don't see that as as necessarily a good thing. In terms of the ecosystem, you're an expert on island ecosystems. That's why we wanted to speak with you. So what damage do you think the horses are doing or what impact are they having on that ecosystem? Well, well, generally, remote island ecosystems are one of the most threatened ecosystems in the world. And one of the things that has harmed them is introduction by settlers, mainly Europeans, but others as well, of grazing animals and and other terrestrial mammals onto these islands. Um, And they obviously uh, very much degrade the vegetation. They cause 
soil erosion and soil compaction and really drastically alter the island. And at Sable, really, the, the horses, these introduced horses, are really the major ecological factor uh, affecting the island. Not everyone agrees with you. Uh, as you well know, there are those who argue that these horses have been there for so long, centuries now, and are now genetically distinct. Uh, they're of scientific interest in their view and, and worthy of protection. Why don't you feel the same way? Well, I don't think that they're that genetically distinct. I've I've read the, the papers on that, and they're, it's fairly clear they're English draft horses. They're a highly inbred population because of their isolation. Um, I don't necessarily I think that that's an argument for, for keeping them out there in this horrendous situation. You know, Parks Canada will argue that they, they're naturalized and therefore they should stay. Um, and I don't really buy that argument because lots of awful introduced species have become naturalized and, in fact, introduced invasive species like Norway rats and invasive plants like kudzu vine and Japanese knotweed and... Uh, invasive uh, feral cats introduced to remote islands. Um, they're all naturalized, and they're all causing horrendous damage. Right. But people love the horses a lot more than, uh, than, the, than the things you just described, right? It's hard for people to, to see them in that way, perhaps, for some people. Yeah, I, I would ask them, um, you know, if you love the horses, why you'd, you'd want a, a breed of domestic horse to be exposed to this, this kind of suffering. What do you think should happen to these horses, then? Well, I and others have been suggesting that the horses be removed from the island. Um, that sounds kind of harsh, but it, it could be done in, in a variety of very humane ways. The horses could be physically removed from the island. They were brought there in the age of sail, and we certainly have the technology to remove them if we wanted to. Another thing is um, control on the island. You could disectomize the stallions, um, and they'd live out their lives there, and um, the the effect of the horses on the island would gradually diminish and disappear. And then we could really get about restoring um, a very valuable uh, gem of an island um, that requires restoration to its natural state to support really native species. What would come back if the horses weren't there? There'd be more cover, more plant cover on the island. There'd be less erosion. And species like leeches, storm petrel, a seabird, would recolonize the island. And species that are on the island but under threat, like the endemic Ipswich sparrow, would be favored as well. Do you imagine that there could be a compromise where the horses could, could continue to live on the island but still minimize their environmental impact? That would be a continuing contradiction of Park's own policy, which is to remove uh, introduced invasive species. But if it did occur, um, a herd of horses would be restricted to a corral on a small mm -hmm. part of the island. And they'd be looked after uh, carefully by caregivers. I guess that would be the compromise. But the majority of the island should be left to be a park. Do, do you imagine that there's going to be a decision one way or the other soon? You know, I would never want to predict the future, um, especially about as emotional and sensitive an issue as this. But I would just make the plea uh, to Parks Canada to uh, restore this island. It's a... It's the most remote island in Canada. It's, uh, our, it's, a, it's basically our only remote island ecosystem. We have an opportunity to, here to, to preserve, restore, and conserve it, um, and they should take that. Ian, thank you. You're very welcome. Ian Jones is a professor of marine biology at Memorial University. We reached him in St. John's, Newfoundland. 
The year was 1997. The Stanley Cup playoffs were underway, and it was a good time to be a Buffalo Sabres fan. Senators with the puck it back in, but Plant steals. Up with Barnaby, Plant shot, scores! Just a year after failing to even qualify for the playoffs, the NHL team won its first series against the Ottawa Senators with that unforgettable overtime goal by Derek Plant. And although the Sabres would later fall to the Philadelphia Flyers, nothing would change the fact that they had exceeded expectations. They were widely considered the hardest working team in the league. Their general manager, John Muckler, was named NHL Executive of the Year, and Ted Nolan took home the coveted Jack Adams Award for top National Hockey League coach. But it would be nearly a decade until Mr. Nolan coached another NHL game. And it turned out what was going on behind the scenes was very different from what fans saw on the ice. Now, more than 25 years later, the Ojibwe player and coach has written a new book that tells the previously untold story of those years and many more. Life in Two Worlds, a coach's journey from the reserve to the NHL and back is just that. The tale of how Ted Nolan, one of 12 kids in his family, left the Garden River First Nation in Northern Ontario for the NHL and how he eventually found his way back. We reached Mr. Nolan today in St. David's, Ontario. Ted, welcome back to the show. Well, thanks very much for having me on, Neil. Before we get back to that pivotal season with the Buffalo Sabres, our listeners just heard about, I was wondering if you could take me back. Um, You know, it was quite moving to read in the book that moment when you first laced up a pair of ice skates in Garden River. Well, I tell you, that's when when we all, I guess we all reflect back on certain parts of our life and and certain parts are are very uh, memorable. And, you you know, growing up in Garden River, uh, you know, making that first... uh, First sheet of ice in my in my backyard with the, with a the pail of water and skating over the moonlight. Uh, I tell you, those were uh, wonderful memories of, of the freedom of, of the sport. Uh, I uh, I'm a big baseball uh, fan. I love playing baseball, but unfortunately, in Northern Ontario, our, our baseball seasons were very short, and we didn't have a chance to. But hockey was uh, one of those one of those spots. Like I said, we all have uh, uh, escape mechanisms to. Uh, avoid some of the dis- uh, things that don't work out very well in your yeah. life. And hockey is just one of those uh, escapes. I just went out and uh, skated in the, on the ponds in the back and uh, in the rivers and in uh, the self-made rink. And that's where I fell in love with the game. What do you think you were, you were escaping from? Because I was quite moved by how you <laughs> described how loved you felt and your admiration for your parents, their warmth, what they instilled in you. Yeah, you know, I was escaping. You know, on on the flip side of that, there were some moments where, uh, you know, with the with the residential school and, and the mental health and, and the trauma that that affected people, and uh, there was there was a lot of um, uh, drinking in our house. Also, uh, that's when the the happy stories that they were starting to tell. Uh, the more they drank, then all of a sudden the, the dark stories came out. Then they start talking about the injustices that had, that happened, and all of a sudden there's tears, and all of a sudden there's that's when you know when you're you're sitting in your bed, you hear uh, you hear some arguing, you hear some chairs turning over, you hear some uh, loud yelling. Mm-hmm. So just kind of you put your pillow over your head and you you try to try to forget about it. But when it happened during the uh, early evenings, then that's when I escaped, went for a run or or, yeah. or played hockey. 
Yeah, you described that feeling that deep love, uh, and you know you didn't have to look for friends because your siblings were were right there, uh, and you were this big warm group. But you, you did say you didn't always feel safe, and sometimes that meant at school as well. Yeah, no, no question. We we saw, I didn't uh, uh, go to residential schools, no. but I went to day schools, which started off in reserve, and uh, and that wasn't wasn't too too pleasant. I went there for about two to three years. And then we went to the city of uh, Sault Ste. Marie and they bust us all in and getting off. And, and we looked a little bit different from everybody else. We, they served us lunch in, in a separate, uh, separate area at the time. You know, they, they brought us into the nursing station and they used to comb our hair with the, with one of those fine tooth combs to make sure that we don't have any bed lice. They looked through our nails and, uh, check us all over like we're, we're like we're cattle before they, they released us into, into the main population with everybody else. So you, we always felt a little bit different trying to fit in it but thank god we had our ourselves to to really lean yeah. on uh, during those early years and there's a you say right off at the beginning of the book some words your dad gave you that he would always tell you um and that you didn't really understand why he was focusing on that because you loved who you are and who who your family is but what did he tell you and how did that help you during those times when you know the teachers and students weren't behaving as they should you know, I've always from from both my parents. They they have always instilled in me the uh, be proud of who I am, and 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 the, we we talked about our culture and 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 one of the sad sad parts is you know they they both spoke uh, Ojibwe, but they never taught it to us, mm-hmm. and they, they were so afraid because of what happened at the residential schools that happened to other kids who who spoke their language, and you know we just heard some horrific stories, so they just didn't want that pain to go on us, but. Uh, Growing up, they always told us to to fight who we are and be proud of who we are, and and so that's why my father inst- said that to me a thousand one times, and I didn't know he was really preparing me for those tough times that I'm, I was going to get to in the future. Maybe maybe he saw it, and in the sport itself, you know, they, yeah. he just uh, he just wanted to make sure I had fun. He just said, "Hey, you have fun today," and and he wasn't looking at me to be become a NHL player. I assumed at the time, but my brother told me uh, a number of years later when he when he passed away that my father always thought that I could uh, yeah. I could play this game for a living. So, but he didn't tell me that. He just told me to have fun and, and to be proud of who I am. That really got me. That was one of the moments in the book that got me that he always just said, "Have a great time. Did you have fun on the ice? There was none of that pressure." When you you started playing hockey. You leave Garden River. Um, first, you're in Sault Ste. Marie, uh, but then you go to Kenora. And that's a pivotal moment on a couple of fronts, but particularly difficult years. And when you were on our program before talking about those trading cards, um, that you know that rookie card you were finally going to get, you talked about you know those sleepless, tearful nights. But Kenora was another level. Um, can you tell me a little bit about what you experienced there? It, it was a whole. It was a whole different level. Like I said, I grew up in, uh, you know, hearing the stories, you know, hearing about the injustices. But I always, I always had faith in in people that uh, they're not all bad. People are not all bad. They're just some. So I, I always had the faith that if you worked hard enough and if you did the right things, things would work out. And and when I went to Kenora, um, I had that belief, and I was just thrilled. I thought I was going to Disney World. <laughs> and then when I got there, the the reality of the uh, the environment at the time, uh, it wasn't so pleasant. And people look at you, and all of a sudden you have some fist fights in the 
uh, parking lot, I guess. And then you go to the hockey ring trying out for the team, and somebody would spear you and say, "What are you doing here? You, you wahoo!" Mm-hmm. And you know, you have some fights in, in the team that I'm trying out for. I tell you, it was a really rude awakening to what was out there when you leave the reserve. And now I look back at some of the kids who do leave, uh, and I don't blame them why they they ran back. And if my father was alive at the time, um, who knows? Maybe he would have he would have said, "Hey, you're not having any fun. You should come home." And uh, it uh, the game of hockey really changed for me personally. Uh, I didn't enjoy going to practice anymore. I didn't enjoy where I was living anymore, but I didn't want to quit. Uh, I, I wanted to persevere and fight through it. And, and, uh, and I, you know, writing letters, we didn't have a phone. So mm-hmm. I writing letters back home. I didn't want my, my family to, to know what I was going through. And I, I thought I could do it on my own. And, and I did, but I, I did it in a wrong way. Cause I, I, I kept a lot of those, those feelings inside. And by doing that, I, I don't remember the, the whole year. I, I don't remember. I get that. That gives us all a sense of just how difficult, how traumatic it, it must have been. Uh, we we want to play our listeners uh, a clip. It's it's a clip of your brother Steve speaking about some of the early years, uh, and this is this is from the two thousand nine documentary Ted Nolan Behind the Bench. Ted and I, when we started in the zoo, we had to share gloves and and a helmet and stick every time we got off the ice. It was different shifts from each other, eh? so he was. You know, he could skate a little bit, play a little bit, and so every time he go off, he'll drop his glove, take his helmets off, and give me the stick, and I'll go my turn. I can just imagine all those non-native parents would say, oh, look at those cute little Indian kids out there have to share their equipment, right? You guys had fun with it, clearly, but it, it does underline the, the difference in resources and how much more difficult it might be for someone without those resources to move up in the NHL. Oh no 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 question. I mean that was just part of our our upbringing. We we had to share the things that we had, and you know times were were a lot different. But I tell you, when you have to uh, um, uh, survive and do it, it was just natural. And so we didn't feel like we were poor kids. And that's that that's the whole purpose of of writing some of the things down and and reflecting on it. I I really wanted to try to educate people that you know we're, we're all the same and we all have emotions and feelings and, and wants and, and what have you so i just really i i just did it for the next generation of kids coming yeah. through that just be a little bit more accepting you're listening to as it happens and my conversation with former nhl coach ted nolan about his new book life in two worlds a coach's journey from the reserve to the nhl and back again Ted, let's get to that moment where you, that draft moment, because it's quite a moment in, in the book. Uh, I think you're playing cards with your family uh, at home and you've got the radio on. We love radio here at As It Happens. And these things are such huge events now. But what comes across the radio when you're sitting there at the table? Oh, you know, we're just playing cribbage. We always played cribbage. We sat down, drink tea and coffee and have, you know, we sit down there for hours and hours. And then one day we're, we're sitting down with, with my girlfriend, who's my wife now, and my mom, we're playing cribbage. And all of a sudden on the radio came on that uh, from the NHL draft, uh, local product, Ted Nolan from Garden River, just got drafted in the fifth round by the <laughs> Detroit Red Wings. My mom really didn't know what draft was, and, and tell you, I didn't really know too much about it. But uh, you know, just with with my father passing a couple of years before, and times were a little lean, so I didn't want to. Uh, I was excited as heck, tell you, 
Uh, sure. But I, I didn't want to show my emotions in front of someone, and I just kind of washed it off and say, "Hmm, wonder what that means." And we about ten minutes later, my wife, uh, my girlfriend at the time, we hopped in the car, we went up into the woods, and we uh, we we let our emotions be <laughs> yelling and screaming. And I tell you, that was a that was a moment. But it's a moment that you should be able to share with everyone. But at yes. the time, you know, things weren't uh, as happy as as they should. So, uh, kind of. Uh, squashes that that yeah. moment for for uh, celebration. It's a beautiful moment in the book. I, I could picture you both, uh, you and Sandra, screaming. At the, I think you were standing on the hood of your car, if I if I remember correctly, and yelling. Um, but also, just to hear you talk about it, that's incredibly selfless at such a young age, Ted. Well, you, you know, when I when I went to Kenora too, and coming home at Christmas time, and you know, everybody asked me how it was going. I said, "Oh, you should see it. It's it's a big town, and uh, we travel on bus. We go in." So I I, I kind of skimmed through what I what I I envisioned it to be when I left, but it wasn't that when I got there. So when you know, writing the book, I was just telling the 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 fluffy parts, the the good parts. Since you brought up your your wife, Sandra, uh, I understand she was the one who told you, if you're going to write this book, you have to lay it all, all out there. You have to tell the whole truth. Oh, no, no question. I mean, that uh, you know, you, we all have guardian angels in our life, I, I believe, someone to uh, really watch over us. Because we, we wouldn't be talking about this. My, my career wouldn't have happened. Uh, and Sandra was only 16 years old when we met, and I was 18, and married now 40-something years. But... <laughs> But going through what I went through early in my life and feeling unsafe outside of the outside of the reserve, and when I got drafted to the Detroit Red Wings, I went to the camp and uh, I, I left because I, I didn't feel like I fit in. And uh, Ted Lindsay, uh, thank God, he he called me and asked me what the problem was, and, and he asked me to come back. But I would never have went back if uh, if Sandra mm. said she wasn't going to come back with me. And really showed me the, the really because I, I had it with my parents, my family, that unconditional love, but I never had it for outside of my family. I'm glad you found each other, and that is a powerful thing, unconditional love, because there were more tough times ahead. Certainly, it's that that journeyman hockey player life that that you're into, and and you describe the tension of that. Can you can you tell our listeners what you mean by that tension and the difficulties of those years? Oh, it's, it's very tough living in a in a small First Nation community, not understanding how hockey works and all the conditioning and all the it takes. And I just kind of, I just kind of played, and I didn't know all that. And then all of a sudden, you, you get with men, and you got to learn that aspect. And then all of a sudden, there's some social aspect to the game when the guys went out to the to the bar after practice, and you just kind of get involved with that. And um, you know, living in in the city, just a whole different. Uh, uh, reality that I was into, and and I was ill prepared to to deal with it. Except uh, I was I was good at what I what I did, or I was good enough to play at yeah. that level, and uh, I just managed to get through. Yeah, you you were playing pretty well, but at the end, you know, we talked about that high point when you found out about the draft and cheering. But then in 1986, you have a back injury uh, that later you find out is career ending, and your reaction might surprise people. You were you were excited about that. Tell us why. I was very excited about it because I, I didn't have to go through that anymore. You know, name calling and and, and physical attacks and, and fighting, sometimes even fighting with your own teammates. And some of the coach making fun of how you stick handle and turning the stick into a uh, a tomahawk and pretending that's the way I, I stick handle. So it was just so much to, to bear. And tell you the truth, it, it seemed like I was holding my breath. 
uh, the, the whole time. Uh, from the time I got uh, drafted and trying to fit in and not just playing to enjoy it, but just trying to fit in and proving that, you, that you're good enough to be there. Then uh, it, it takes its toll. It, it really does. And so when I, when I got injured and when the doctor finally told me, he says, Ted, uh, um, looks like you might not be able to play because of your injury. I was, I was just thrilled to death when they told me I, I couldn't play because the one thing I didn't want to do uh, was to quit. I, I didn't want to. I didn't want to quit. So I just uh, persevered. But I, I was tired of, of persevering through it. I, I was, uh, I was worn out, and I just really wanted to be me. In the end, the ice does call you back, but in a different way. You realize that you really love coaching and molding young players. How did that feel? You know, I, I, I feel really blessed in my life with certain things. When I went back to school at Lake Superior State University, I was so happy about the next chapter of my life. Then I ran into the, the coach of the Lake Superior State Lakers. His name was Frank Anselm. And uh, walked down the hallway and he said, Ted, uh, I understood you played pro hockey. Would you mind coming out to practice helping the young kids? And I said, sure. And I went out and I, I did that for a little while. Then all of a sudden, uh, you know, for some of the listeners out there who remember the name uh, Phil Esposito, mm-hmm. uh, happened to be from my home, near my hometown in, in Sault Ste. Marie, and he owned the Sault Ste. Marie Greyhounds. And he asked, uh, how come I'm doing that over there? You should be doing it over here. And I said, <laughs> no one asked. So anyway, long story short, uh, before you know it, I'm I'm staying uh, behind the bench of the Sioux Greyhounds as assistant coach. And I just I just fell in love with, with coaching. And then, you know, a few few months later, Phil asked for, if I'd be head coach. I didn't know what I was doing, uh, but I, I just uh, fell in love. with. I, I made everybody on our team feel as important as, as the star players did. So I just really wanted to treat everybody the same and, yeah. and felt with it. And then we won. And uh, that led into the next career of, of coaching. And our listeners uh, heard off the top. You were certainly good at it. You helped turn things around in a very big way as head coach of the Buffalo Sabres. And in 1997, you were rewarded for, for that and for all of your work. Let's just play a clip of that moment. And the Jack Adams Award goes to... Ted Nolan. Wow. I, I you know, to start off a couple years ago, I was just really happy just to, to be in a league and, and to stand here is, it's unbelievable. But, <clears throat> wow. I, I'm just really, really thrilled to be right here. And there's a lot of people in my life that, uh, that helped along the way, and, and I'd, uh, I'd just like to thank Buffalo Sabres for, for giving me the opportunity to coach in the league. And, uh, of course, uh, no we can make it. Uh, Mario said it, and, and, and a couple of other players said it. You know, family's so important, and I'd like to thank my family. Thanks. It's such an emotional uh, and powerful moment. How does that moment sit with you now? You know, I, I, was, I, was, I was thrilled to at that time to because you, you when you Neil when you when you work your whole life and you, and you fight through some of that stuff then all of a sudden you, you get to the to the to the pinnacle of, of your of your career and that's the NHL that's the highest level you can go and all of a sudden you, you win coach of the year yeah. and I, like I said at the time it was just one of the moments I was so happy and when I said no one uh, no one does it by themselves I just remember it all and that's why I get so emotional Mm -hmm. because you remember all the people who went before you and the the residential school survivors and and our and our elders what they had to endure 
for us to be here. So I was just, I was just over the moon. And I was just, uh, just really, really thrilled to to be at that point at that time. And uh, uh, what happened after that, uh, uh, we we can discuss later. Yeah. Well, we, you know, you you open your book um, with a very brief story of of that award, the trophy coming to your house, and it's not this joyous unboxing moment, right? You kick it down the stairs. So for people who who don't know your story or have only heard rumors about it. Why were you so angry at that moment instead of celebrating? You know, after the the award, uh, the Buffalo Sabres offered me this uh, uh, bad contract. It was the same thing I made, not even a, a penny a, a raise. And I just felt they didn't want me. So I, I turned it down, assuming that I would get another uh Another position, which uh, which never came, except for Phil Esposito did ask me to coach the Tampa Bay Lightning mm-hmm. the following season. But uh, my family was uh, a little bit more important than, than a job, and so I just turned it down, waited for the next one. I mean, I just won Coach of the Year. James, you should you'd think uh, you'd get a job with with anybody, but to answer your question, um, it was just when when you fought so hard, and all of a sudden they they take it away, and when that trophy came, it was just a uh, my state of mind at the time, my my mental health, going through all that stuff, it just represented everything that w- that was wrong in the sport. And I just kicked that thing as hard as I could, and not ever wanting to to be involved with the, with the sport again. And uh, you know that was my my mental state. To what extent do you think racism was the reason for what happened to you after that big win, when your career should have, in your view, kept going and going? You know, I mean, people would say. Uh, a little differently, but I strongly believe that it was because of my my race. Nobody knew who I was. Um, when I got let go, no, everybody believed all the rumors they're, they're uh, insinuating that I did because they had to justify why to let me go. Uh, and I just felt if I was white and if I was from uh, mainstream, I would I would have one of the one of the colleagues call you because they all know each other. But when you have someone who looked like me. A little bit different than you hear rumors about drinking and about mm. uh, coming to practice drunk and all. I mean that that set me for a loop. And um, but part of the book, I asked a, a, a former colleague of mine who yeah. uh, he was part of a, another franchise in the league that uh, his GM told him that uh, I was drinking at practice. I'm going what? Uh, unfortunately, it ruined my reputation. Nobody wanted to uh, talk to me. I, I did have some some interviews and and what have you, but uh, sometimes they look like you were just token interviews. There was yeah. Then you do get a really promising offer. I mean, they say they're going to announce it the next day. You tell Sandra you're excited, and then you get a call. And when you hear that those words, we decided to go in a different direction. What do you think now when you hear those words back? Um, when I got offered the job, uh, they said, well, go get a new suit. Uh, we'll introduce you to draft tomorrow. Yeah. I went home, got a brand new suit, got a tie, and I was so excited. I couldn't tell anybody. Then all of a sudden, a couple hours later, I'm sitting down by myself and I get a call from the from the general manager. That the, he got uh, overruled by the by the owner and said he's gonna, he wants a diff- different coach. It was just a, a very heartbreaking uh, moment. Uh, I was home by myself. Uh, my wife was out and she came home and I had to tell her what uh, what just transpired. So it, it 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 devastated me. It really broke my heart because, uh, like I said, in in uh, where I grew up was, you know, your word is your is your bond. It's uh, my my parents, uh, 
as soft as they were and as loving as they were, they always told me never to trust uh, people from from the city. Uh, meaning that the white people don't don't trust them, don't trust them at all. They they break all their promises, they broke all our treaties. So I heard that my whole life, and I I didn't believe it. But here I was, had uh, something promised, and all of a sudden they take it away. It was it 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 hurt a lot. What did Sandra say to you in that moment when you know you have your face buried in a pillow? You said you're so devastated. What did she say to you? What did you do together to be able to move from that place into a happier one? You know, it, it just kind of, you know, uh, sometimes even with my oldest brother, Rick, he, he was, he was a man of few words once in a while. And, uh, but when things were tough, he came and sat and you could tell he was, he was there for you without even saying a word. And, and that's how, uh, how Sandra was. Those, I don't think it, it words weren't going to do anything. And words weren't going, well, we'll wait for the next one there. And let's do, let's go about it a different way. No, we we just sat and uh, we, we cried together and uh, took us a little while to understand what uh, what really transpired. And it gives you another, another look at the game of hockey that you go, geez. Once again, at that moment too, Garden River First Nation home becomes a place for you to, to reconnect and heal um, and regroup. You know, the, the NHL season is, is set to start. As as you know, there's certainly been lots of controversy about Hockey Canada over the last year. How do you feel about the game and how it treats players now? You know, I, I think we're, we're getting a little bit better, but uh, it's it's better from uh, from the white perspective on how we, we think it should be changed. Instead of talking about the to the grassroots people who who actually went through the experience and how it made them feel and and how their their emotions and how it affected our you know just like the uh, truth and reconciliation you're not going to ask the priests how, how how they think the the schools went no you have to talk to the survivors and, and get their opinion on what uh, what happened and what what transpired in order to make it better uh, but you could do your own part. But we do the three Nolan hockey camp, and we we educate our our our, uh, our kids on our own. We go through it, and and what you go through. But you know, is it getting better? I, I you know, uh, kids and, and families are, are learning a little bit more. Uh, my grandson plays baseball, oh. and went out uh, last uh, last year, and he and he misjudged a, a fly ball, and it hit him right in the head. Oh no. And he, he dropped down, and you know he's crying a little bit. But I tell you, five or six of the kids from the city came over and, and said, are you, are you okay? And I thought it was such a such a cool moment because yeah. Yeah, when I was going through it, they would have laughed and said, look at that dumb Indian. He can't even catch a ball. You know, those, those, so, so things are, are changing. And uh, I, I think people are changing stronger than the people who are, are running the sport are. There's that through line of joy, as we talked about, when you find out you're drafted, then when you realize you don't have to play hockey anymore, but then seeing your son hoist the Stanley Cup to that moment that you just described for us right now, which is not in the book. But what is it like for you sitting from this vantage point now? Do you feel that all those those pieces of you, that, that, that you are your full self and that other players can be that way now too? Oh, yeah. You know, I, I did everything in my power to, to make uh, life a little bit better. Like I said, uh, you, you want to make sure you, you have a footprint and especially my my parents, the, the one thing I really wanted to do was was honor them in some way, and by honoring them in some ways, doing good, and doing good is is being a good parent. 
And I just really wanted to to be there for my kids and and help them in whatever way he did. And so I I, I made a rink in my backyard just like I did <laughs> when I was a kid. But I, I made it with a water hose. I, I had indoor plumbing at the time, and uh, they went out and played, and they both fell in love with the game. Uh, but tell you the truth, Neil, I I didn't put him in hockey to to try to play in the National Hockey League. I just yeah. uh, it was a sport everybody played, and uh, they got better. And and all of a sudden, uh, you know, Brandon gets drafted to the NHL first. He ends up playing a, a little bit with the Carolina Hurricanes until his injury happened. Then all of a sudden, his younger brother gets drafted in the seventh round by the LA Kings, and a couple years later, he's he's hoisting the the Stanley Cup and bringing that cup back to the community was was uh, one of the moments I'll, I'll never forget. Uh, seeing the 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 emotional side of the you know some some people had some tears in their eyes and they're so happy <laughs> and it was just one of those moments that uh, I'll never I'll never forget and and we had a chance to do it uh, do it three times through uh, Jordan's uh, uh, being part of the LA Kings twice and being part of the St Louis Blues. Ted, once again, it's a pleasure to speak with you. Thank you for coming back on the show. Oh, well, Neil, thank you very much for, uh, for having me on. And um, I'm looking forward to like, everybody else to, for the book to come out shortly. Yes. Take care. All right. You too. We reached Ted Nolan in St. David's, Ontario. His new book, Life in Two Worlds, A Coach's Journey from the Reserve to the NHL and Back, is published by Viking and comes out on October 10th. You've been listening to the As It Happens podcast. Our show can be heard Monday to Friday on CBC Radio 1, following The World at Six. As It Happens was produced this week by Leslie Amundsen, Katie Gelliff, Chris Harbord, Sarah Jackson, Devin Nguyen, Morgan Passy, Chloe Schantz-Hilkis, Kate Swoger, and Chris Trowbridge. Our intern is Pascal Thompson. Our technician is Reynold Gonzalez with help this week from Will Yar. John McGill is our director. Our writers are Lisa Brynrundel and my co-host, Chris Howden. Zian Eros is our senior producer. And the executive producer of As It Happens is Austin Webb. We'd also like to thank some other people who helped out this week. Allison Dempster in Calgary, Vanessa Blanche in Moncton, Mary Catherine McIntosh in Halifax, Susan McKenzie in Montreal, Paul McGuinness in Ottawa, Kina Alwahedi, Samira Moyedin, Jonathan Orr, Jason Vermesh, Brandy Wykley and Luke Williams in Toronto, and Penman in Vancouver, and Suzanne Dufresne in Winnipeg. Thanks for listening. I'm Neil Kirksall. And I'm Stephanie Skanderis. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.